Hi, this is Father Kelly Edwards with the Priesting and Teaching Podcast. On this episode, I, want, I would like to talk about holy orders, that is, the diaconate, the priesthood, and the bishopric, and some objections to those. Now, full disclosure, this is a talk that I just gave to the Life Teen group at the parish, but uh, there's nothing about that that means it wouldn't be, at least hopefully, interesting to uh, more than just a group of 25 teenagers. Uh, you know, we all encounter uh, deacons, priests, and at least sometimes bishops, and they do have a very special place in the church, one that is uh, often misunderstood or not accepted by uh, the secular or non-Catholic or even sometimes in the Catholic world. So I think it's certainly an interesting topic. Uh, on the future of this podcast, I don't think uh, every single uh, topic will be specifically church-related, even though the first couple ones have been so far. Um, but this is, I think, a very worthy topic, so uh, I think it'll be a lovely time. So the very place to begin, just with some basics. What are the, or well, really, how do we get into um, diaconate, priesthood, and becoming a bishop? Uh, the very basic, people always like to know, you know, how things are, what do you have to go through? So a priest, which we'll talk about most of the time, is the second of three kinds of holy orders. Now, the first kind, the diaconate, some, some men only receive the diaconate, and they stay there. Uh, we have two deacons in our parish. Perhaps your parishes have some deacons. They're usually married men, and you know, probably after they've retired, or at least after their kids have gone out of the house, they go through school for you know part-time, uh, maybe for about four years, and then they are ordained deacons, but that's as far as they go. They don't, at least in most circumstances, uh, don't move on to become priests or, or bishops. Then there are some, like myself and other priests, other um, who other priests who they went through full-time school, usually six to eight years, are ordained deacons for a, usually towards the end of seminary, and then perhaps a year later are ordained priests. And then a few of those priests, God bless them, are called to be bishops. Uh, nobody should ever want to be a bishop. It's a very difficult, uh, very, some well, often thankless job. Um Basically, the, the, the person who might want to be a bishop, you don't want them to be a bishop. Uh, there's something about the role that is very good, it seems, for those uh, who kind of don't want it. It hopefully gets across the kind of humility that one needs for the job. Anyways, that was an aside. Let's look at the roles that they have, and that can help give us... Uh, some insight into what the, these different, different offices are. A deacon is one who is focused on service and charity. A deacon takes care of the practical needs of the church. Let's look at the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distrib distribution of food. The twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God to, in order to wait at tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to, the serv and to serving the word. So, there at the beginning, this is just the early chapters of the book of Acts, 
the Christian church realizes, the apostles realize, that there is work to be done sort of of several kinds. It's not, in a sense, right for those who are apostles, those who are most responsible for the heavy lifting, the, the spiritual work of the church to be doing uh, sort of the the day-to-day office table waiting kind of work. Not that there's anything at all wrong or dishonorable or anything about that kind of work, but it seemed to them, and I think rightly so, that there needed to be some differentiation of offices. So the apostles decide to, through the inspiration of God, of course, decide to ordain, to appoint, to lay hands upon men to make them deacons so that they may serve the needs of the church, that they may literally take care of, uh, to wait at tables, to make sure the functioning of the church happens, handling money, logistical stuff, the operations of the church, taking care of the poor, those sort of hands-on-the-ground kind of work that needed to be done so that uh, the apostles could be left for sort of the, the more profound spiritual work, if you will. Again, not that there's anything wrong with the more labor kind of work, um, each has their part. A priest, a priest is focused on, in a sense, making the people holy, primarily through preaching and doing sacraments, but also through counseling, visiting people, uh, running the parish. Basically, we have priests because the bishops can't be everywhere. A priest has been given uh, sort of a, a share in the bishop's power. He's been sent out by the bishop to do the bishop's work. So let us look at uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Every priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins, as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor, but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So a priest is a man called by God to live and work among the people, to offer gifts for sins, to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, that is, you know, counsel, care, care, leadership by the bishop and by God. Uh, a priest is one sent, called by God, by the bishop, to serve the people, but he must remember at all times that he is in need of the gospel just as much as everyone else. He leads the parish, he takes care of things for the bishop, he sanctifies the people, performs the sacraments. Priests are the ones that people see most of the time at Mass, doing anointings, doing things, visiting the hospital, uh, all of those sorts of stereotypical priestly activities, baptisms, weddings, confessions, all of that sort of stuff. A bishop, well, a bishop has it all. You see, the priest shares in some authority of the bishop. He's been designated, he's been sent out, dispatched by the bishop with some with the bishop's backing. But a bishop is really pretty much the same as an apostle. Uh, a bishop is one given that authority by his call, appointed to be Christ to his diocese. He has everything a deacon has because he was a deacon once and moved and then was later ordained a priest. So he sells everything a priest was and then ordained a bishop. He doesn't lose being a deacon. He doesn't lose being a priest. He retains those earlier offices. And then it's also a bishop, the, what we call the fullness of priesthood. 
He has it all. He is Christ the head. He is Christ the boss, the leader, the shepherd for his diocese. A bishop teaches the faith with the full authority of God. The full authority, not as if he is God himself, but authority in the same way that Christ gave his apostles authority. Because every bishop participates in his office through the laying on of hands that has come down through the centuries from the very first apostles. There is no break in continuity from our local bishop all the way back. It can be traced bishop to bishop, all the way back to the beginning of the church, all the way to St. Peter, all the way back to Christ himself. So a bishop has a very special role, a very special authority in the church in that his role, his power, his his teaching, his authority, again, comes essentially directly from Christ and the very first days of the church. So we have all three of these orders. They're all of them really as old as the first day of the church. All of them trace back to the roots of the early Christian church. Deacons, priests, and bishops, really as we experience them now, were present at the earliest times. They may have had slightly different names, you know, priest for presbyter, for example. But it wasn't as if there's some radical departure between then and now. Things might be slightly different in basic practice, but what we have now, with permanent deacons very often doing, uh, you know, tape, you know, waiting at table literally at mass, uh, often providing needs of the parish, uh, managing things, making sure things work well, um, helping serve the poor, making sure that gets taken care of, priests doing sacraments or the on-the-ground ministry, saving souls, baptizing, uh, preaching, doing mass, hearing confessions, all that stuff, bishops being the ones who lead, uh, you know, the diocese, who have who teach with authority, who, who lead the faithful towards the gospel in a, in a uh, high authoritative way, though not uh, an officious way, but I mean, the rank of their office, they uh, teach and lead with a certain position of high authority given them by God. Now, but all three of these orders weren't simply invented at the time of the early church. So from the early church, you know, they're 2,000-ish years old from then to now, but they were actually somewhat ancient offices even then. You see, in Old Testament times, you had the Levites who tended to the temple. They were in care literally of the temple property, of the temple money. They made sure, they made sure the sacrifices worked out. They were very much like what we would call deacons now. Then there were the Aaronic priests, not ironic, but Aaronic as in Aaron, uh, the assistant to Moses. Those priests literally did the sacrifice. And they had some roles teaching the people as well. But their, their main job was sacrificing on the altar in the temple. And that really meant, you know, like the way one might uh, dress a deer, for example. You know, cut it open, get the organs out, cut up the parts of the meat. Uh, except for in this case, they would put them on the altar to be burned in sacrifice to God. So a priest, Old Testament sense, primarily was at the altar doing the sacrifice. And I hope that we can see that pretty easily uh, in a connection to what a priest does now at the alt at the altar in the church, you know, receiving gifts of in this case bread and wine, but food type things, offering them, breaking the bread, 
Lamb of God, you know, sacrificed animal in the altar, Lamb of God, the Eucharist, a priest now in the Catholic Church does, though in accidents and, and you know in, in physical attributes, a bit different, still very much related to the priesthood, even of the very ancient Old Testament, uh, you know, two to three thousand years before Christ, even. And then bishops, there's not quite the uh, concrete analog to the Old Testament in the Old Testament of bishops, but I think it's very easy to see uh, prophets, judges, kings, and some of the roles of the priests as well as being the role of a bishop, of, of leading the people, of teaching them, of, in a sense, sometimes even pushing them forward, of being the uh, decision makers of the people of God. So even as far back, uh, thousands of years before Christ, we have uh, pretty obviously deacons, priests, and bishops. So what we have now uh, is in no way or form uh, something invented in the last few centuries or even uh, many you know, centuries after Christ. Deacons, priests, and bishops in their essential nature have been present for an incredibly long time in human history, not to mention Christian history. So, what about celibacy versus married priests. Now, I gave this talk uh, to the youth earlier. We began with a skit that showed some of the tensions in you know, what, if, what if a priest were married and also had uh, you know, younger children as well, perhaps. Uh, because that is, that is a, a, a common complaint or maybe a, a criticism. Well, you know, if, if we just had, if we just let priests get married and let them have families, then they would be so much happier and there would be so many more priests and it would fix all of our problems. Now, people might not say it exactly like that, but oftentimes there is that kind of spirit behind it. Now, the skit was, you know, it had to be simple because it was a skit, but it showed that there can certainly be a tension of, suppose you have a priest who, you know, has a family that needs his time and attention, you know, kids need him to be at you know soccer games and go to parent teacher meetings and be you know be present in the ways that dad has to be present to his family but then also to be present to a parish to teach RCA to do this and do that perform sacraments go to the hospital etc cetera, etc cetera. there's would be a very i think difficult tension there um, you know i can say that well sometimes you know he would uh, have to make that evaluation of well where do i spend my time where do i spend my energy and I can say that for myself, that's one of the things that really assures me in the goodness of celibacy is that, you know, I know that if I were in that situation, if I had a wife and young children and somehow were preached at the same time, that uh, I would struggle with that of, of how much time do I give to which thing. And I would probably uh, have great difficulty not uh, giving my family not enough time because of the church. I mean, just thinking back to, to my college experience, uh, it happened uh, somewhat often, unfortunately, that some of my friends would call me and say, "Hey, you know, you want to go, you know, want to go to dinner, go to the bar, something like that." We haven't uh, haven't really seen you in a couple weeks. Seems like you've just, you know, always been at the church, forgetting about us. And oh man, sorry guys. Okay, you know, uh, you know, yeah, okay, tomorrow we'll go because I already said to do this thing tonight. Uh, so you know, I can I can definitely see how. If somehow that were the case, uh, if I were a married priest with children especially, that would be an incredibly difficult tension 
uh, how to navigate that to give. Because, you know, of course, marriage is a beautiful vocation and priesthood too. And it's uh, both very important and uh, deserving of great focus, each of them. Uh, I can't imagine having to shuffle those things. But it's not just about that practical aspect. It's not as if the only argument for celibacy or for the only, yeah, the only argument for celibacy is that, oh, well, it practically gives one more time. That is true. You know, the fact that I, as a celibate priest, don't have uh, a wife and family you know, immediately here that I need to take care of. Oh, I don't have them at all. But, you know, I do have extended family, but not immediate family. Uh, to take care of here that, uh, you know, oh, well, I have more time. Yes, true. But it's deeper than that. Let us go to the Catechism, uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1579. And uh, let's, we'll find some, some richer uh, explanations, some richer reasons here to go on. All the ordained ministers of the Latin Church, with the exception of permanent deacons, are normally chosen from among men of faith who live a celibate life and who intend to remain celibate, quote, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven called to consecrate themselves to, with undivided heart to the Lord and to the affairs of the Lord. They give themselves entirely to God and to men. Celibacy is a sign of this new life to the service of which the, of which the church's minister is consecrated. Accepted with a joyous heart, celibacy radiantly proclaims the reign of God. So there's a couple of very beautiful connections, very beautiful phrases in there. I like the, the line of consecrated with undivided heart. How beautiful is that, that with a celibate minister, you have someone who is undivided in terms of their ministry to the church and to the people of God. Their whole heart, their whole being is focused in this one direction. I mean, I think if you're going to have someone who's your minister, you want them with an undivided heart. Isn't that a beautiful sentiment? Consecrated to the Lord and the affairs of the Lord. Again, this, this lack of division. So they're consecrated, given, set aside for a special purpose to the Lord and to the affairs of the Lord, taking nothing at all away from the beauty of married life to be, no matter how wonderful of a distraction that would be in a sense, what kind of pain would there be, what kind of difficulty would there be to be pulled away from the Lord and the affairs of the Lord to be focused on one's family? Let's also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 34. Let's see where to go. There it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 34. If you want to be free from anxieties, I want you to be free from anxieties, says St. Paul. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord, so that they may be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please her husband. Again, there's nothing negative about marriage there. That's not saying that marriage is bad, but... To have a married clergy would especially have this tension between the affairs of the Lord and the affairs of the world. 
Oh, one more note for that catechism reading. All of the 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 being consecrated with, consecrated with an undivided heart is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I think is a, is a beautiful sentiment, a beautiful line. That all of these sacrifices, all of these consecrations, are not simply for this world, not simply for the good they do in this world, but for being consecrated, being focused upon for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. An interesting question, uh, an interesting note, I asked the kids during the talk, is everyone celibate in heaven? And they kind of hemmed and hawed for a minute, but they all kind of, they all, the group resolved to, yes, I suppose so. And yes, that is the right answer. Uh, you know, sex and marriage are great, but every moment in heaven is better than even the most perfect marriage and all that goes with it. And, you know, marriage and all things that go with it are part of God's plan in the earthly life to help get us to heaven, to help spouses be united and to, to raise each other up to heaven. But once you're in heaven, those things aren't necessary anymore. So everyone's celibate in heaven. Heaven's much more than that too, but that's an interesting way to think about it. And so if we realize that, we can say that celibates, clergy, but also religious, including women religious, are living here on earth a taste of heaven. So let us look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1618. Christ is the center of all Christian life. The bond with him takes precedence over all other bonds, familial or social. From the very beginning of the church, there have been men and women who have renounced the great good of marriage to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, to be intent on the things of the Lord, to seek to please him, and to go out to meet the bridegroom who is coming. Christ himself has invited certain persons to follow him in this way of life, in which he remains the model. So, those who take up the life of celibacy follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And I hope, it should, that image of following the Lamb is supposed to uh, imply the book of Revelation, the vision of heaven where all in heaven are bowed down adoring the Lamb of God seated on the throne. So those who live the celibate life in a very unique and special way are partaking in a very limited way, for sure, but partaking in an aspect, partaking in a way that life is lived in heaven. And uh, that's a very, uh, very beautiful way of looking at celibacy. Celibacy also uh, makes possible a focus and an intimacy with so many others that's, that's really not possible in a married life. As, as a celibate person, I have, this is kind of in the practical realm, but it's deeper than that, uh, I have an availability to people so much more beyond what I could have uh, if I were married. Um, you know, the example I gave earlier was that in class was, as, as I am, I can hear confessions for four hours at a time and feel rejuvenated and enlivened by that. I can be sort of emotionally, and of course physically too, you know, present, but I can be emotionally available to these very people, many people over this long period of time. And that's day in, day out for priests a lot too. We can be emotionally, uh, you know, spiritually 
uh, you know, present to people in a way that if we had a family at home who we had sort of a primary focus on, we really couldn't be um, present and uh, even intimate in a way uh, with others that um, we are able to be because we are celibate. Uh, I heard this anecdote from somewhere, I don't remember where, but uh, you know, a nun basically said, or no, a kid observed about a nun uh, who was talking about the celibate life. The child observed, "Well, sister, you know, you don't have you don't have a, a husband to give hugs to, but but you can give hugs to everyone." Uh, you know, the child observing in a very childlike way that uh, sister was available in you know in a way to everybody she encountered in a way that wouldn't really have been possible if she had a spouse really though the most compelling argument for celibacy is really the most simple one and just for clerical celibacy at least that christ himself whom priests and bishops especially uh, emulate in when they when they perform their office in persona Christi in the person of Christ. They imitate, they live out, they in a way are Christ himself, who himself was celibate. Christ was not married, despite, you know, books and little bits of, you know, oh, parchment from ancient times found in the back of a cave or a library that, oh, look, a little word, something about Jesus's wife, and uh, those things always end up being so silly and ridiculous. Jesus was not married. It's any serious scholarship will affirm that. Jesus was not married. He lived a celibate life. That wasn't in doubt until, well, recent times or things like that became popular to make a scandal. Oh, Jesus was actually married. Jesus was not married. Um, you know, all those uh, books and, you know, bits of ancient parchment that prove that Jesus was married, they was in it being silly and discredited. But there's a better reason, aside from <clears throat> that uh, occasional, you know, flash-in-the-pan excitement stuff. The better reason, the better, <clears throat> pardon me, is that, don't you think, if Jesus was married, that it might have been mentioned at some point? You know, if... Jesus is as positive on marriage as he is, which he most certainly is. And if the church is so positive on marriage, which she most certainly is, that if our Lord were married, that would be a beautiful image, a wonderful image, a wonderful affirmation of marriage. Why would the church ever keep that a secret? That would be incredibly foolish to keep something beautiful about our Lord being married to a secret. But since no one mentions it in the scriptures, no one mentions it in the early church, no one mentions it in tradition at all, Holy Church doesn't have any tradition about Jesus being married, even though it would have been beautiful and a wonderful thing to pass on, we can be very confident in not having, not worrying about uh, Christ having been married. Christ was celibate. And so it's very, very appropriate that his ministers, especially his priests and deacons, who uh, most especially participate and most especially function in persona Christi, are celibate just like him. Now, we've done a lot of talking this whole time so far. 
about the celibacy of priests. And that's because it's really the biggest thing the secular world doesn't understand about the priesthood, really about the church in general, but especially about the priesthood. Celibacy is just a massive stumbling block for so much of the world. And the secular world has such this big problem with it. It doesn't understand it. And like most things we don't understand, we, we hate, we fear. You know, it's like a student who says they hate math when they don't understand it. You know, it causes fear and anxiety. So the world, secular world, that loves to make everything about selfishness and about sex just cannot comprehend and so rages and foams at the mouth against the idea that someone would sacrifice themselves, they would give up sex and marriage for the good of others. It just can't fathom that celibacy would be a happy way to live. And I think it grinds your teeth sometimes that you know those who uh, give in to to sexual desires and selfishness uh, don't find themselves to be very happy, whereas those who give up those worldly pleasures are often incredibly happy and incredibly joyful. Uh, there's something that is just so scandalous of an idea to the world about that. Uh, I think, you know, while some people may have uh, genuine uh, intellectual reservations about priestly celibacy, I think very often, and you see this uh, a whole lot if you dare to read message board or YouTube video comments, which don't, um, so many people frame it, frame it in an intellectual way, but there's a whole lot going on, a whole lot of anger and confusion about celibacy that gets manifested itself in a vehement intellectual argument when it's not necessarily an intellectual issue primarily for them. So, uh, that's on celibacy, but that's not the only thing that uh, there is fervor about, that people are angry at the church about. Uh, the lack of women priests is another one, and I want to be uh, reverent as much as I can, because I know this is a sensitive topic, I don't want to do um, dismiss it outright, but I don't want to um, soft play things either. So uh, bear with me on this in case it's a perhaps a difficult topic. But I, want to, I think it's important to return to what was really the most important thing about priestly celibacy and imply it here as well, even though uh, I admit it does, at first phrasing, sound overly simple. If priests and bishops are acting in persona Christi, in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ is a man. God saw fit to send his son. And so, as difficult as that may seem, it is very, very appropriate that those who act in the place of those who uphold, those who minister in the person of Christ, the Son of God, are sons themselves. Now, that's not the only argument for it. But that, I think, is a very um, convincing one in its astounding simplicity. And it's something that, even if it's not 
convincing immediately. It's something that very much needs to be wrestled with. It's not a fact that can be dismissed casually. So even if Christ himself being male does not, to you argue strongly for a male priesthood, it's not something that can be glossed over either. Uh, it's not an insignificant detail. So uh, don't let it be dismissed too casually. But that's not the only thing. That's not the only, only uh, argument to make the case. It's also very much worth observing that while there were many, many women around, uh, many women witnessing to the faith, serving, very active in the early Christian community, very active around Christ himself, and of course Christ himself had no problem going against cultural norms, so uh, he had no problem going against cultural norms, there were many women around, and yet Jesus did not ordain women he did not set up women as his apostles and priests even though it wouldn't have surprised anybody if he did in a way uh, it would certainly have been possible but for whatever reasons some of which i'm sure are beyond us the lord jesus did not choose to do so this becomes especially profound when we consider that the virgin mary his sinless mother was around and surely if any woman in the history of ever was worthy to be made a priest by jesus christ surely it would have been her and yet even his blessed mother he did not make into an apostle and priest in the same way that he made the apostles and the priests the male priests of his early church that is the way it is but I think it's worth noting that, again, with celibacy, the arguments against having a male-only priesthood are more than just an academic issue. Now, this is, again, uh, wading into sensitive waters here, um, but I think this comes on a good foundation, what I'm about to say. Secular culture has not been good to women. We are seeing some of those fruits right now coming out in various scandals and uh, the way women have been mistreated. But in general, I'm just trying to speak very carefully, secular culture has used and abused women, stripping away their God-given beauty, wonder, and mystery. And then with that good taken away and smashed, it tried to grab for something else, something to fill it in. It's like if someone smashes up a beautiful painting and then tries to rip another one out of its frame to fill that hole. Modernity has trashed on, has smashed mother, the beautiful God-given gift of motherhood and feminine beauty and is now trying to grab masculine things and fill that hole to repair that in a sense, repair that damage that was made. It, it threw away something beautiful and trying to grab something else to make up for uh, what was in that place. I know that uh, may not be unpopular. I'm not sure how that lands with you. Uh, but I think if we look at, you know, if, we, if we read you know, John Paul II and talk about theology of the body and think about uh, the, very, the, the feminine beauty and uh, you know, masculine and feminine roles 
if we keep those in mind, the way God planned things, the, God, the way God intended things to be, uh, the beautiful complementarity of men and women, then a male priesthood that does that, you know, and then I think I think a complement is uh, women being able to to bring life and bear children is something that men can't do. So there, I think there's a complementarity that's very beautiful. Um, I think if we keep uh, proper understanding of men and women's human sexuality uh, in their good order, then there really isn't any scandal about the lack of women priests. But if we begin to disorder and trample upon uh, the beautiful way that God made men and women not better or worse than each other, but made them different and complementary, if we trample on that way, if we trample on that uh, beautiful pairing, then we start to try and mix and match and copy-paste and it be, we start to make a mess of things. I think that's some of where the, the drama about uh, women priesthood comes in, is that we're trying to compensate for what's been damaged and taken away. Another difficulty with uh, women priesthood, and it really um, where a lot of the argument comes from, uh, it's always if you ask, you know, well, why is this an important deal? What's what's the why do women have to be priests? It's often framed in terms of uh, power and authority. Oh, well, the 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 male priests they have the power and authority. Women got to have some of that power and authority too. I definitely want to say that there certainly, most certainly, have been priests, bishops, others in the church who have abused their God-given positions, their blessed positions, in a way that sets up this difficulty. There have been those who have misused the priesthood for power and authority in inappropriate ways, and thus sort of set up a reaction that, oh, well, we got to have some of that too. Um, but the priesthood is not essentially about power and authority. It's about service and sacrifice. But again, when we, when we end up with a disordered view of the priesthood, when we get things out of line for how they should be, how God planned them to be, uh, it's then that we get uh, mismatched things. Because the, the priesthood is not about the special guy who gets to be in front of everybody and spend time telling everyone what to do at the front of the church. That's not what the priesthood's about. The priest has a role to do that liturgical function uh, and to serve as leader of the community, but it's not about pride. It's not, it's not about the power. It's not about, oh, I'm big and important. It's not that women are being kept out of being big and important. It's not about that at all. Um, the church is full of women leaders and saints and great examples and wonderful forces in the church. It's not, and they certainly should. There's, uh, we should be very worried if there's a church that doesn't have female voices in it. Um, but the priesthood is not about the power and authority. And so if we keep a properly ordered view of priesthood in mind, keep a properly ordered view of human sexuality and of the roles the wonderful, beautiful roles that God gave to all of us, then the questions both about celibacy and about you know, who can and cannot be a priest uh, really seem to crumble away. They seem to uh, not hold water if we keep things in proper order. So 
I hope that has been uh, helpful, informative. Uh, it has gone on for quite a long time, longer than uh, some of the other things that I've posted. Um, but I hope it's been very fruitful. I hope it's been uh, something that has been helpful. Uh, please feel free to uh, comment or more helpfully email with uh, questions. I'd love to uh, maybe, maybe do something in the future uh, to finesse more of this. Um, and you know, do please ask questions of me, of your priests, of, of deacons, of bishops, if you're into them. Uh, this is something that uh, need not be in the dark. Uh, none of this is a secret. None of this is, is hidden knowledge or things that you're not allowed to know, uh, even though many of us perhaps haven't encountered these sorts of things. So uh, please do, uh, do research, check out scripture, read the catechism, ask around, um, get to know these things, because it really is, uh, you know, I can say from, for myself as a priest, uh, a very a very beautiful, wonderful, fulfilling life. Uh, choosing celibacy certainly is a sacrifice in some ways, but it's not uh, anything uh, miserable and lonely and uh, a lot of the things that the world likes to imagine that celibacy is like. Uh, you know, you'd have a much harder time finding a grumpy, miserable celibate than a happy, joyful one. Uh, you know, you see uh, nuns and a lot of priests, too, who are just... Uh, off the wall, joyful in love with Jesus Christ, and it's it's an amazing thing, and they live celibate lives, and so uh, I think that's most certainly worthy of paying attention to. So, and I hope this has been uh, helpful, interesting, informative. Uh, you know, helps you with uh, a life of faith and understanding of the church, and uh, just at least this this one aspect of the way that she works, the very beautiful way that God has set things up to work. The music I've used today is the song Tours by the Artist Enthusiast, and I got this track off of freemusicarchive.org. For ideas or feedback, please email me at priestingandteaching, all spelled out, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless. <laughs>